for me especially. <clears throat> Father, you are the one who sits on the throne, the creator of the universe, the Almighty. And we have gathered here this morning to worship you, to honor you, to recognize your greatness, your magnificence, your splendor and your love and your kindness. We are in awe of you. We love you. We want to praise you. And we seek you this morning together. And we ask, oh God, please help us. Help us in this difficult world and help us especially to be able to see you in the midst of the difficulties that we might have to face even this week. But as we gaze upon your face, that's all we need. Because we know that you're in control. That you will see us through to the end. We long for that day. That day when Jesus comes back and all. How marvelous it's going to be. But today, we have gathered together to worship you and to hear from you. So please speak to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. It's the last book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through Revelation verse by verse. And we are at a new section of the book. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 dealt with seven mini letters Jesus wrote to seven churches at the end of the first century. And now we're shifting into a vision that John has in chapter 4 and chapter 5 before he then begins to speak about what the end of time will be like. And today we're going to see a view from heaven and how it gives us the proper perspective for living in the end times and for living in any difficult time that we might face. So I wanted to watch a video. This is a true story from Soul Surfer about a Christian who was a surfer and experiences a tragedy, a shark uh, attack, and she loses her arm in that. So we want to take a look at this. You said it's hard to see things clearly sometimes when you're too close. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been trying to get some perspective. I've been really trying. God's plan for me. I don't understand. I don't know why terrible things happen to us sometimes. But I have to believe that something good is going to come out of this. Soul Surfer is a true story. Life can be tough. Uh, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Life isn't fair. Some suffer far worse than others do. For Christians in the end times, it will be grim. 
seeing life from our own limited perspective can be debilitating when chaos hits. And we need a view from heaven, from God's perspective, from above the clouds, so to speak. And that is what John gets just before his vision of the end times. And that's very, very vital and important that we see this before we see what comes later in chapter 6 on. So let's read our passage. We're going to take chapter 4 and 5 in four different messages uh, to get a full view of this vision. So let's read it now, chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightnings and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so he sees this incredible picture, this vision of God himself on the throne. It's very important that we get that view, that view, especially whatever we might have to face. And so I want to start out by looking at this first verse. The plan of God is brilliant. By the way, God is really smart, okay? And his plan is amazing when you see the plan from the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And John, he got to see things from God's perspective, just a little glimpse of things from God's perspective. You remember the vision of Jesus in chapter 1 that we talked about. Chapter 1 was an incredible vision of who Jesus is, and we need these visions. Whatever we might have to face in this world, we need to be able to see God from his perspective and see especially that he's on the throne, that he's in control, because he has a vision of God on the throne. The, the, the word throne is actually used in the book of Revelation 40 times. So in the midst of the chaos, we need to be reminded over and over, God is on the throne. He has not been usurped. He is still in control. I think of Paul. He had a similar experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He describes it, verses 1 through 10, where he had this vision, and he even describes it. He says, I don't even know if I was in the body or not. I just was taken up to heaven, and I, and I saw things I can't even describe, and the revelations God gave me. And because of that, I, had to, I got a, a thorn in the flesh. A, a, he says it was a, a messenger of Satan just harassing me. And I asked God to take it away from me three different times, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient. And he needed that vision to help him through the difficult times he was going to face. John needed this vision. He's uh, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, but we need this vision for whatever we might have to face, especially if we are getting close to the end of time. But the plan of God 
is brilliant. You see, we normally have an under-the-sun perspective. We don't see things from God's perspective. We see things kind of horizontally. I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, an incredible book, uh, Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. Uh, He's speaking here uh, from an under-the-sun perspective, so to speak. And let me just read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? The NIV translates this meaningless. Everything is meaningless. King James said, all is vanity. It's vanity, meaningless, futile. From this under the sun perspective, that phrase under the sun in verse 3 is found throughout the book of Ecclesiastes because he's writing this. By the way, this is an incredible piece of wisdom poetry, but it's different than the book of Proverbs. Uh, what they call speculative wisdom. It's that deep wisdom. And he's talking about things as they look from this perspective all the way through the book until the very end. And then he finally gives a glimpse of an above perspective. So we'll go ahead and cheat. We'll go to the end. Chapter 12, (laughs) verses 13 and 14. He says, When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. He is going to make things right. From an eternal perspective, everything is going to be dealt with. We don't see it in our limited time because we're finite. We're limited by time, by space, and even by knowledge. But from God's perspective, we must see this vision that we're seeing in the book of Revelation that God is in control. I think of Corey Ten Boom. Now, she had an eternal perspective. She actually was hiding Jews from the Nazis, and she got caught and had to go to the concentration camps herself for her efforts. She was able to say this, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. She had an eternal perspective. Now, her sister helped her. She she grumbled for a while. But her sister helped her through this difficulty where she was able to come to a place where she said, she actually said she thanked God for the lice in their bunks because it kept the soldiers away from them. I mean, that's a, wow. You think, I'm just amazed at what she had to go through. But with that eternal perspective, God used her mightily to help others going through difficulties. So John sees things from God's perspective, but we normally have an under-the-sun perspective. But we need to see this plan of God, this great plan of God. And so we, I want to focus on this last part of verse 1, after this. Let me read the whole verse again. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
If you remember, back in chapter 1, we saw the outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 19, tells us exactly how this book is going to unfold. And this is what it says. And this is Jesus, right after he has this vision of Jesus. Jesus tells him, therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. First, what you have seen. That's chapter 1. That's the vision of Jesus that he describes. What is, that's chapter 2 and chapter 3. What was happening in the churches at John's time. And so he wrote those seven letters to those churches. And then, what will take place after this. That refers to what's going to happen in the end of time. That's where what we see now, he's going to write what must take place after this. Now, chapter 4 and chapter 5 are this vision of God in heaven, but then chapter 6 will begin to describe the end of time and what it's going to be like. The end days, the very last days. You know, the Bible talks a lot about what the last days are going to be like. And he uses this phrase, the last days, in several places. Now, I don't have the page numbers to these passages, but I do want to look them up. So let's uh, first of all look at Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, this is the minor prophets. Hosea chapter 3. Verse 4, for the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. And we need to understand that ever since 586 B.C., the Jewish people have not had a king. And ever since 70 A.D., the temple has been destroyed. And so he's referring to this time since 70 A.D. especially, that they will live without a king, without sacrifice. But then look at verse 5. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. In the last days... They're going to come back to their homeland. Their king, David, the son of David, Messiah, is going to, they will see him. They will come with awe to the Lord. They're going to come to Christ. What we see from this is a prediction that in the last days, the Jewish people are going to come back to their homeland and they're going to receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah in the last days. Guess what? They're already back in their homeland. Okay, so it's just a matter of time for this last part. And this is what it's going to be like in the end of time, but it's going to be glorious. Uh, Look at Matthew 24, verse 3. Matthew 24 is the chapter where Jesus shares his thoughts about what the end of time is going to be like. And in chapter 24, verse 3, It says, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
what's it going to be like when you come back at the end of the age? That's what they're asking him. So then he goes on and he describes several things that are going to be taking place, what what scholars have called the birth pangs of the end of time. And this says, if you skip to verse 14 at the very end, it says, and then the end will come. So this is, so chapter 24 is describing the very end because God wants us to know and to be prepared. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Isaiah is kind of a great book because it goes back and forth. It'll go with some judgment and then some promise, and then judgment, and then promise. And he kind of goes back and forth like that. Chapter 1 was some major judgment on his people, and then chapter 2 is a promise of what the end will be like. It says in verse 2, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. And skip down to verse 4 in the middle there. It says, They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. That's going to be nice. That's what the very end is going to be like when it's all said and done. Uh, I want to look at chapter 25 too. It's my favorite part of the promises of what the end is going to be like in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on the mountain." A feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. There will be no more death No more crying, no more tears. We'll see this reiterated at the end of the Revelation. Whereas this wonderful, incredible feast is going to take place. This is what it's going to be like. But we've got to understand here from the big picture, from the plan of God, tribulation comes before the banquet. Evangelism comes before rest. God's plan is not for us to just sit around and enjoy life, though He does allow that and likes for us to enjoy life. There is times of rest and so forth, but He has a mission for us, and it's a mission in the midst of a difficult world. And so there's going to be tribulation, especially at the very end. Incredible tribulation. That comes before the feast. But, and the service, the evangelism, reaching the lost, helping people enter into the kingdom comes before the rest. I love hearing the stories from you, okay? You know, we have those real activities. Every month we have a different activity that we encourage you to get involved in uh, on how to share the love of Jesus in a practical way. And I love hearing when you come up to me and say, hey, I tried it. Remember Royce, he came up to me, this was last month, and he said, that last month was when we prayed for a stranger. Remember that? Okay, that was like a difficult one. He, you know, he comes to me and says, you know, I haven't done a lot of the ones in the past, but I said, I, I want to do this one. 
I'm like, boy, you picked a tough one to do, right? You know? and, and so he says, so he prayed for his uh, dental hygienist. It's like, yes, that's it. We're supposed to get involved. There's stuff for us to do in the midst of this. Yes, there's going to be pain and suffering and difficulties and tribulation. But we get a banquet. And we get rest. It's going to be wonderful. But that doesn't come until after the tribulation. But God's plan is brilliant. And a vision of God is all we need to get through whatever it is we have to face. This is what we see in verses 2 and 3. He describes the indescribable. He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. A vision of God is all we need in the midst of the pain and suffering. Now, there is a difficulty, the problem of evil and pain. It's probably the biggest question that atheists ask, how could there be an all-powerful, all-loving God, and yet there's so much evil and suffering in the world? And what's fascinating about the Bible is that it doesn't so much answer the philosophical problem, but it does give the solution, which is probably more important. Uh, In fact, the problem of evil and pain We don't have time to look up these verses, but if we were to look, there's three major places that the Bible speaks of how do we live in the midst of evil and suffering and and, uh, unfairness. And in the book of Job, first of all, you know, Job, he goes through so much and he never understands what's going on and questions and just is exhausted by the end of the book until he comes into the presence of God. When he meets God, that was all he needed. He didn't need answers to his questions. He needed the presence of God, and that was enough. So you see that in the book of Job, where he was satisfied. We see it in Psalm 73. The psalmist, he's baffled. It it just seems like the wicked get away with everything and the righteous are just simply not blessed and he's perplexed by the whole thing. And then he says, until he came into the presence of God when he entered the sanctuary and then he understood. He saw things from an internal perspective. And then he was able to say, whom have I but you? That's all he needed was the presence of God. We see it in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is an interesting book because it's God and, and Habakkuk are having this dialogue back and forth. Habakkuk asks God, how come you're allowing your people to be so wicked? And then God answers, replies, and he says, don't worry, we're going to get them with the Babylonians. And then he's perplexed because he says, but wait a minute, the Babylonians are worse than the Israelites. How can you do that? And and so you see this struggle and this wrestling with Habakkuk. 
until he comes into the presence of God. And so once again, all three instances, the presence of God was enough. And it's fascinating how he ends his story. Uh, in Habakkuk, you know, he's going, wrestling with all these difficulties, and he finally comes. And when he comes into the presence of God, though, it says he's like his knees are wobbling and he's shaking because of this experience of God. But in that, the faith rises, and he's able to say in verse 17 of chapter 3, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Though the Vikings never win the Super Bowl. (laughs) Yet, I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. You see the faith in that guy? And it came not from answers to the questions, but from the presence of God. And that is truly the solution. The solution to evil and suffering is more important than the explanation. But why evil? I do want to just spend a little time and talk about why God would perhaps allow this. We spent two and a half hours two weeks ago in my class on apologetics on this question. So if you want to go into more detail, it's online. We have the class online, two and a half hours, simply discussing the the problem of evil and suffering. How can there be an all-powerful, all-loving God and yet so much evil and suffering in the world? So you you can check that out. But briefly, first of all, the free will defense. Let me read from Dan's story. I think he succinctly states it well. He says, God created Adam and all people to worship, obey, and have fellowship with him, to love him. Genuine love is inseparable from free will. God could have created Adam and all other people to think and act like robots. By divine mandate, God could have caused Adam not only to obey him, but to love him. Would this have been genuine love? Of course not. Love can't be programmed. It must be freely expressed. God wanted Adam to show his love by freely choosing obedience. That's why God gave Adam a free will. A free choice, however, leaves the possibility of a wrong choice. Adam made the wrong choice, thereby allowing sin to enter the world. As C.S. Lewis explains... The sin, both of men and of angels, was rendered possible by the fact that God gave them free will. Because he saw that from a world of free creatures, even though they fell, he could work out a deeper happiness and a fuller splendor than any world of automata would admit. Love was that important to God. And so, the free will defense, this is why God would allow evil and suffering for a time to bring about a loving relationship with us and God. Another uh, uh, help in this is what's called the soul-making defense. That means simply that God uses difficulties in our life to help us grow. In fact, I dare say if we were to take a survey of this 
group right here. And I were to ask you, how many of you, at what time did you grow the most in your relationship with God? Was it during times of blessing or during times of difficulty and adversity? The vast majority of you would say during adversity. And it's because God can use those things to help mold us and shape us. And then finally, the eternal perspective. And that's what we're getting from the book of Revelation. That when it's all said and done, when we realize that this is just for a time, God is going to wipe out all evil. He is going to bring justice to the world. That it is going to end. There's going to be a time forever and ever where there'll be no more crying or pain or suffering. And when you think about, okay, from an eternal perspective, yes, 70, 80 years might be really difficult years. But when we get to heaven, when we're on the earth with the the new created earth, and we're here for like a billion years, and we ask each other, do you remember what pain was like? Not really. You see, from an eternal perspective. From our passage, we see things from the vantage point of the throne in heaven. This is especially necessary for what is about to take place in the book of Revelation, which is, like I said before, the throne is mentioned 40 times in the book of Revelation because we need that view. A vision of God is all we need, but a vision of God demands our praise. When we see God, when we have a glimpse of his glory, it draws us immediately to praise him. Uh, Daniel Aiken in his commentary, he says, John does not attempt to describe the someone sitting on the throne. He can only tell us what he's like. After all, 1 Timothy 1.17 tells us our king is eternal, immortal, invisible. And 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see him. In our sinful fallen state, no human can gaze on this God in his undiminishable glory and majesty and live. No one. And so he's just describing briefly what it was like, but just even a glimpse of his glory brings about spontaneous praise. And, and we experience that in other ways. You know, when you see a beautiful sunset, you don't have to think and say, okay, I should probably say, wow. <laughs> right? You see the sunset, and it's just immediate, wow. Elizabeth and I, I really miss her, Okay. We, uh, we, early on when we lived in Florida, we went, uh, one time we went to the west coast of Florida and we went to a place called Honeymoon Island. It was just absolutely beautiful. And we watched the sun set over the ocean, okay? So just beautiful, gorgeous. And then, and then we got in the car and we traveled over, it's like an hour drive is all, to the other side of Florida and we got a hotel and then we got up early in the morning and we watched the sun rise over the ocean. And it was, and it was really easy to say, wow. Okay, it, my wife, you know, when I first met her, it was just her love for Jesus just astounded me. And, and, I, and, and it was easy for me to praise her, still is, 
because she just absolutely loves Jesus. And when you see that in her, you just want to praise her. It's just natural, right? You see what I'm saying? So when you get a glimpse of God, it's way more than that. It's just like easy to worship him. If it's a struggle for you to worship God, then I'd say open up your eyes, okay? Because he is amazing in his glory. Absolutely amazing. Daniel Aiken again. He says, Isaiah 6, 1 says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Psalm 47, 8 adds, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Drawing from Ezekiel's vision, John says, the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. Gordon Fee notes that in Exodus 28, these are the first and last of the 12 stones mentioned in the description of the breastplate of the high priest, and that both of them are red. The jasper stone may represent majesty, holiness, or purity. The carnelian stone signifies wrath or judgment. John also says a rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne, a reminder of God's covenant to Noah and his faithfulness. Put them all together, and you have a vision of God's majesty, splendor, glory, and faithfulness. He is beyond description in appearance and utterly reliable in his promises. He is awesome, magnificent, transcendent, and spectacular. There is no God like our God. Yeah. That's what, that's what you could just picture John as he's experiencing this. That's right. And I hope you're getting a feeling for it as well because we need a vision of God. And a vision of God is all we need, whatever we might have to face in this life, especially as the last days come upon us. And then finally in verse 4 and 5, we see the power of God demands our praise. He says, Around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the first question I ask her, who are the 24 elders, and uh, scholars disagree, and they got their different ideas, but probably most likely, it's the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles representing all of God's people. But we cast our crowns before the Lord. But then the lightning and thunder. Now this, went, the way he describes this here, there's no question that people would be reminded of what the Old Testament talked about. I, I wish I had more time. I'd love to look up the Nahum passage. You should look up that because it really describes God and his awesome glory with this thunder and lightning and so forth. But another passage, even more important than that, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Okay? Exodus 19, that's just the second book in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, so easy to find. Okay, So Exodus 19 describes, in my opinion, one of the most tragic episodes in the Bible. This is the setup here is God has told Moses to get the people ready that he's going to meet with them. That God himself is going to meet with his people. And so here we see in chapter 19, verse 16, it says, On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning 
a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. They got to meet God. Okay. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And then then he goes on and describes in chapter 20, we see the Ten Commandments. This is when they received the Ten Commandments. What you need to understand is the Jewish people, they are there. They are hearing God speak the Ten Commandments, okay? Later, they get them in stone, but they are there. They're in the presence of God. They hear God speak. Now, here's the tragedy. Skip to chapter 20, verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, They trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid. For God has come to test you so that you will fear him and not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. God had invited them to come and to meet with him. And when they heard his voice and when they saw the thunder and lightning, the power of God, rather than rejoicing but still being in very great awe, they backed off. They stood at a distance. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but verse 20 was a little strange, wasn't it? Look at this. It says, Moses said, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. Don't be afraid so that you will fear God. Did you get that? Because there is a difference between being afraid of God and the fear of God. A huge difference. And the difference is when you are afraid of God, afraid of anything, you back off. And that's what they were experiencing rather than the fear of God, which the fear of God, that is the awe and wonder and amazement of God. But it is a fear that draws you to God in amazement and wonder. Yes, you do not even want to think about sinning in the presence of God because he's a holy God. But yes, you want to draw near to him because he loves you. That's what they missed. That's what... John is reminding us it's still the same God. He is awesome in his glory. You better shake in your boots at times, he says, but draw near. Don't let it push you away. Let it draw near. And so he's inviting us to come. And the blazing lamps symbolize truth and holiness represented by the Holy Spirit. It says the seven spirits of God, or we saw this in chapter 1, or the sevenfold spirit. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, He convicts us of sin, changes our hearts, and sanctifies us. Judgment is coming. And if you are one of His, you are safe. If you are outside the kingdom, 
you are in trouble. Now is the time to repent. In the end times, more than anything else, we need to see and hear God. We need to see life from an eternal perspective. There is the truth of the kingdom of God, and it is both now and not yet. There are times in which we experience the glory of the Lord. We see healing. We see incredible things. But there are other times where it's not yet, and so we suffer and we long for his return. And so in those times especially, we need to remember what God has shown us about himself and about his plan. We need to regularly build each other up, and we need to regularly be built up by each other, by your brothers and sisters in Christ. God's plan is amazing. A view from heaven gives us the proper perspective for living in the end times. Let's walk in his vision and his plan. Let's pray. I want to invite the worship team to come up. Father, we recognize that you are awesome. That you are amazing. You are splendid in glory. You're way above us and beyond us. The creator of the universe who spoke and the entire universe came into existence. You are the holy God who will punish sin. But you are also the loving God who sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And you invite us. (laughs) You invite us to come into your presence as we put our trust in Christ where all our sins are forgiven completely. And we have no fear. We can just walk and experience your life and your love. We don't ever lose the respect and the awe because you are glorious. But we do love you. Help us. Help us in our times of need. Help us in our difficulties. And especially if the end is getting near, help us. Whatever we might have to face. Help us to see from your perspective. Give us a glimpse of your glory often. I pray in Jesus' name.